All right, friends, you have seen the heavy groups. Now you will see Morning Maniac music. Believe me, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we chase rabbits and discuss our favorite morning maniac music song by song. I am Amanda Rogers. I'm Ben Marlin. And I'm John McFerrin. And now we're going to turn things over to our host this week, Ben. Uh, What album are we talking about today, Ben, and why? So today we're going to talk about the album Surrealistic Pillow by the band Jefferson Airplane from 1967. It took me a long time to get into the Jefferson Airplane. Uh, A lot of people deride them as a 60s relic, all attitude, no substance, kind of what you'd get if a handful of joints became sentient and and formed a band. (laughs) And I'm here to tell you, it's all true. Welcome to the worst album you've ever heard in your life. Wait, (laughs) no. When I finally did get into the Jefferson Airplane, I did find the evidence of a lot of drugs done and definitely some out there politics tied to the late 1960s. But I also found a band with two great singers who could harmonize beautifully and also be distinctive and attention grabbing on their own. A band with a guitarist and a bassist who are both regarded as among the best ever on their instruments a band with sharp, hooky rock songs, and a band with politics that are sometimes doom-laden and sometimes utopian, but are always interesting. And these are all the same band? (laughs) What is this one magical band? I think their greatness is best captured on their second album, Surrealistic Pillow. That is awesome. So how did you figure this out? And where like, where are you coming from with Jefferson Airplane? How long have you been listening to them? Like a lot of people uh, who are too young to have gone to Woodstock and too law-abiding to have gone to Woodstock 99, uh, <laughs> I knew the Jefferson Airplane from their two big hits, Somebody to Love and White Rabbit, both of which were all over oldies radio when I was a kid. They're both great songs, and we'll talk about them later. But As we'll explore as we get into the album, neither is particularly representative of the band's sound. And like everyone who's ever shopped in a department store, I was familiar with the two huge soft rock hits by Starship, which (laughs) was a spinoff of the original Jefferson Airplane. Uh, They are We Built This City. their bone-chilling threat, nothing's going to stop us now, which maybe that was true, but the governor of California could have at least tried to get the National Guard out there to try. (laughs) 
Anyway, those don't really count as only one member of the Jefferson airplane, uh, Grace Slick, was still in Starship at that point. But it's likely that these two songs, both of which sound like uh, if Gordon Gecko quit his job as a day trader and joined a rock band, uh, <laughs> that these songs have dissuaded people from diving deeper into the Jefferson Airplane. Other than those hits, I did not know anything about them, their history, their musicianship, their politics. But I'm a classic rock and 60s nut, and I think it's inevitable that I eventually would have tried to get into them. And when I did, I found out for the most part, they sound nothing like Starship. And what they do sound like, I really like. As a, a Generation X born, teetotaling non-revolutionary who, if I'd been alive in 1969 when Woodstock was going on in New York, I would have made sure I was somewhere in Alaska at the time. I can't say that I have a lot in common with the members of Jefferson Airplane. I just love their music. That's awesome. As for me, I also grew up hearing all the various airplane starship hits on the radio. You know, I knew White Rabbit and Somebody to Love like everyone does. And I always liked the starship singles. Like Sarah was a big hit, too. And that's one of the 80s songs I specifically remember liking when it came out. Too. That's so eerie because you never hear it afterwards. So like, I know my memory is from that time. And that, mm -hmm. that is one of the few songs I remember from the early eighties. Oh, wow. That's, just, that's funny. That's all. I love it. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I saw the Jefferson airplane episode of behind the music at least three times hmm. on VH1. It's a, it's a very interesting one. And then I also bought uh, the Forrest Gump soundtrack, which I still own <laughs> and it had volunteers on it. which didn't sound anything like the songs I already knew. So I went to the library and I checked out Surrealistic Pillow and Volunteers, did not enjoy them <laughs> and didn't bother trying again until like a month ago. So you'll all find out in due time whether my opinions changed or not. <laughs> John, what about you? So I bought Surrealistic Pillow, I think in graduate school. This is back when I was still dutifully looking through uh, you know, the major consensus list of these are great albums from the 60s and 70s that everyone needs to hear. Uh, so I bought it. And it's interesting to me because I've my, my inclination on this album has always been that I like it, but I never think about it. Hmm. Like I, I've been hearing songs from a, you know, pop up uh, when I listen to things on shuffle, you know, pretty consistently uh, since I started doing that. And, you know, from time to time, I'll say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to listen to this album again. And again, I would listen to it and it would just kind of leave a pleasant impression. I would have no inclination whatsoever to, you know, uh, start seeking out more by Jefferson Airplane or anything like that. Um, but I, I decided that it was finally time for me to, uh, you know, give this a more careful listen. 
you know, put some more thoughts and energy uh, into listening to it than I have previously. And I'm still not sure how much more I like it, but I definitely do know that I like it. And, and there are definitely some songs on here that um, hadn't especially caught my attention before that I do think, uh, you know, make this album into more than just the two uh, monster hits plus other stuff. I think that there is something more fleshed out here uh, than I necessarily thought before. So, Ben, Jefferson Airplane is a complicated and dramatic <laughs> band. What is their deal? Well, I'm a complicated and dramatic guy, so I'm the man to You're talk about You're exactly them. the right person to discuss this. <laughs> So the Jefferson Airplane was Marty Ballin's band. Marty was an aspiring pop singer in San Francisco. He'd released a few singles on his own. He was good with the hippie movement, uh, but not necessarily too worried about revolution. Now, I'll call Marty the airplane's engine. Later on, we'll detail who in the band was the left wing, the right wing, the cockpit, the cabin, the wheels, the fuselage, and the beverage cart. Or maybe I'll just let that metaphor crash and burn right here. Marty opened a nightclub on Fillmore Street in San Francisco called The Matrix, and he got it in his head to form a band that could play there. He was at an open mic night and saw a young guy named Paul Kantner get up to play guitar and sing, except Paul got nervous and stepped down without playing anything. But Marty liked Paul's energy, and he invited him to join his band. Wow, that's a risk. Yeah. <laughs> I um, like your energy, guy who can't play in front of people. Come join my band. <laughs> maybe he thought he had like a pliant guy who definitely wouldn't one day edge him out of his own band. <laughs> Marty and Paul recruited the singer Signe Anderson to join Marty up front. And they brought in Paul's friend Yorma Kalkinen on lead guitar. And after bringing in a bass player who didn't work out, they found Kalkinen's friend Jack Cassidy and brought him in as bassist. Finally, they found a guy who played guitar named Skip Spence, and they made him the band's drummer. Okay. Why not? <laughs> this lineup developed a reputation as a great live band on the San Francisco scene, and in 1966, they recorded their debut album, Jefferson Airplane Takes Off. While it's not as distinct as the album that we're about to talk about, uh, their debut still shows off a lot of the band's strengths. A striking male-female vocal blend, rich harmonies, a versatile rhythm section, and a guitarist in Yorma Kalkinen who could alternate between lyrical hippy-dippyisms and fiery hard rock. Feeling how strong my love is for you. 
after their debut, uh, there were some changes in the lineup. Skip Spence left and formed the cult band Moby Grape, and Spencer Dryden was brought in to replace him on drums. And vocalist Signe Anderson left the band to focus more on taking care of her baby than on honing her acid-dropping skills. The band brought in singer Grace Slick, a member of the band The Great Society, and Grace brought two songs with her, both of which would become quite significant and which we'll talk about soon. And she brought a sharp musical sense and one of the most striking voices in rock and roll history. This was the lineup that in 1967 recorded the band's second album, Surrealistic Pillow. They were already a formidable musical force, and they leaned into the heady atmosphere of the late 1960s to make something appropriate to the times, something more raw, more hard-edged, more provocative, and something that reflected the fact that the band members were downing drugs like they were training for an Olympic event. The result is an album that is very much of its time. I mean, this could not exist in any other era of music history, but in the best way. It showcases why that time is worth immersing yourself in. Fabulous. Well, before we get started on explaining why that is, we would like to say thank you to our newest Patreon subscribers, Anthony, Tom, Russell, George, and Phil. Thanks also to all of you who are already there, especially the many of you who have the same names as my (laughs) co-hosts. As for the rest of you, we are entirely supported by our fantastic listeners because ads suck and everyone hates them. So if you would like to help keep us out of the capitalist machine, please go to patreon.com slash discord pod to find out how. How are our listeners supposed to know which mattress would be the best for them? They are just going to have to figure that out for themselves. (laughs) Other ways to support us include leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you happen to be using, and you can help grow our audience by just telling everyone you know about Discord and Rhyme. If you have any questions or if you just want to tell us we're awesome, we can be found on Twitter at DiscordPod or you can email DiscordPod at gmail.com. And now we're going to start off the album with the first of several tracks with just delightfully goofy titles. She has funny cars. Funny Cars features an instantly iconic intro. Spencer Dryden's pounding drums and Yorma Kalkinen playing a descending guitar riff. And right away we hear how powerful a vocal duo Marty Ballin and Grace Slick are. They didn't like each other that much and they both jostled for power in what had unquestionably been Marty's band. But man, could they sing together. Marty takes the lead and Grace, the same singer who in a few minutes will be bellowing at us to feed our heads, snakes in and out of Marty's lead, providing rich harmonies and delicate idiosyncratic lead vocals. 
She comes close to stealing the show precisely because she's so good at not stealing the show. For all that, Yorma might be the band's MVP here. He wrote and he plays the song's signature riff. He shifts to jazzy chords during the song's swinging middle section, and he fades out the track with a stinging, searching guitar solo. The airplane had a lot of sounds, and you can pick which one is realist for you, but for me, this is the best one. Grimy, almost disreputable rock music, topped with attention-grabbing vocals and starry-eyed lyrics that hint at a better world. John, what do you think? So the the first thing I want to say is, with the vocals, one thing that I think slightly acts as a barrier to me really loving this album is, I don't like Marty Ballon's voice that much. I mean, I think he's oh really good. And maybe I just I just kind of feel like when I listen to him, I almost feel like I'm I'm listening to like it's a, such a quintessential left coast late sixties <laughs> voice. And, and I get that like in a way that he's kind of the archetype, and I shouldn't hold that against him. Um, but there's something that doesn't quite totally make it for me with his voice. Now Grace Slick, on the other hand. <sighs> Um, is someone that's just gone up and up uh, in my appreciation as I've drilled on this album. Like, I mean, I always liked her, but like she, she's on another tier for me now. Like, what she's started to sound to me like is almost like kind of a missing link between Mama Cass and Annie Haslam. Ah, I can hear that. Just like because she because she kind of has the uh, the feel of like this really powerful uh, almost specter. Uh, the, this force, but she also has the ability to have just really, really pounding angelic beauty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there, there, there's something just I, I really, really have come to to love in her singing. And so I, I, it, it, in the vocal parts, like when she starts to become more prominent, the, that's part of when the song really comes alive for me uh, from that angle. And then in terms of of what the instrumental parts are doing, like yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, you know everything that. Uh, Ben said about the guitar work, I I totally endorse. Um, it's he's he's shifting between so many st- styles, but not in a show offy way. He's just got all these different uh, angles uh, from which to come to the song, and they all really really work well together. So yeah, I think that this is, you know, just in general, I don't think this is a great sequenced album, but I think no, that this is this as the opener is. Um, it's the best choice for an opener and it gets it off to a really good start. When you said the vocals were a barrier, I was so afraid you were about to say you didn't like Grace Slick. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'd throw me off the podcast, too. <laughs> I should have known better. You would never have a take that spicy. <laughs> you know what I think is this would have been one of the best tracks on Nuggets. Ooh. It's got that same kind of ragged homemade psychedelic quality to it that a lot of those songs have. And in fact... It specifically reminds me a lot of the song Follow Me by Lyman Sabell, uh, which was Warren Zevon in disguise, which I consider a top tier nugget.
that duo was based in LA and the song came out in 1966. And for a lot more info on that, check out the series we did on the whole damn Nuggets box set back at the (laughs) dawn of time. (laughs) So it seems impossible that Jefferson Airplane wouldn't have heard it. And it's 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 such a it's such a similar sound. And I don't know that either group invented this sound. It was just going around in that area. It's very characteristic of that time and place. And it's a sound and a style that I really, really like. So this is a a really excellent album opener. And it was a big surprise to me to find out that Grace Slick, famously powerful lead singer, is also so good at duets. I I don't know if I'd quite call her a backup singer here because both vocal parts carry about the same amount of weight. But the way she slides around the main melody like that is just lovely. Well, that's part of why I made the Mama Cass comparison. Yeah. Because she, she, it's the ability to be able to, you know, even in a supporting role, still kind of she, she's not letting up uh, with her power and her presence, even if mm-hmm. she's also able simultaneously to step off to the side. You're always aware of her. I think she's better at stepping off to the Grace Slick is a little better at being a an, an accent, I suppose, sure. than Mama Cass was. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I love Cass Elliot as a singer, but she was just as far it, it <laughs> there's probably, you know, 10 people going to contradict me right now. But from what I can think of off the top of my head, she kind of had one vocal setting. That's fair. Yeah. And and it was a good setting. But Grace Slick is a little bit more versatile, which, like I said, was surprising to me. I didn't know she had that versatility about her. And that's, like Ben said, that's what really makes this song. I think this is just fabulous. So would you say that she is somebody to love? Possibly. I would say so. And you know what? We better find her. (laughs) When the truth is found to be. hard to hear somebody to love with fresh ears. It's been played to death. It's been anointed as one of those 1960s anthems that sums up the cookie cutter version of the era that you get in CNN documentaries and Forrest Gump. Every time somebody to love is played, another Kennedy dies. And that's a dangerous song and filmmakers should be more cautious about using it. Somebody to love was written by Darby Slick, who was Grace Slick's ex-husband and uh, with her a member of the band The Great Society. And The Great Society made a recording of the song that features Grace on vocals. Interestingly, it was produced by a young Sly Stone. 
Woo. It's definitely the song, but it's much more tentative and much less striking than what it would become. Somebody to Love has got a chorus so catchy that it's easy to tune out everything else that it has. You can hear it in your head and get the gist of it and kind of mentally sand off all the bits apart from that chorus. So I want to kind of reclaim the other parts of the song uh, that I think make it great. The Airplane's recording of Somebody to Love, it just explodes out of the gate. It is just an immeasurably confident stab from a band that had not had any hits or serious success yet. Both Grace and the band sound like they're jumping in mid-song instead of easing in the way a lot of bands would. Mm -hmm. The first note of Grace's vocal announces a major new talent in rock and roll, a booming, fearless, even dangerous female voice who could reach the back row of the theater with ease. Grace rarely leaned into this in the future. I think she didn't want to be pigeonholed as this Grace Slick to the detriment of all the other Grace's Slick that she could be. But just this performance is enough to get her into the record books. Dig how long she holds the note at the end of the final chorus. And, you know, the way that she emphasizes the darker lyrics and almost discards the lovey-dovey lyrics, her performance changes the meaning of the song. Throughout, the track just pounds and churns with echo vibrating out of all of it. Yorma Kalkinen's lead guitar dances around Paul Kantner's crunching rhythm guitar chords. That catchy chorus is played just to burst out of car radio speakers, and Slick's earnest lead vocal is echoed by Marty Ballin's spooky harmony line. The song ends with an extended guitar solo from Yorma, and it just crackles, exuding the same kind of danger that the Stones would channel a few years later on Gimme Shelter. There's no reason that a song called Don't You Want Somebody to Love, Don't You Need Somebody to Love was destined to become an anthem of the late 60s. They're not saying F the system or down with LBJ. This is not the iconic number one hit, Let's Get High, Have Sex, and Pull Out of Vietnam by the Swingin' Bell Bottoms, who may or may not have been a front band for the Viet Cong. Historians are still debating that. <laughs> My point is that Somebody to Love. Thanks to the author, Darby Slick, was always catchy, but the Jefferson Airplane had to do something special to make it explode the way that it did and to make it last the way that it has. And they did. I had heard this song a hundred million billion times. <laughs> I knew all the words and it was just as familiar to me as air. But 
until I started prepping for this episode, I don't think I'd ever really sat down and listened to it before. And it turned out there's a lot going on that I hadn't noticed. All that stuff that Ben mentioned, you know, how freaking weird that guitar is (laughs) and how there's not really a beginning or an ending. It just, it starts and stops. And the drums don't even really actually do anything. Spencer Dryden is really just keeping time, but somehow that's enough. This is just one of those gigantic enduring hits that really did deserve to be a gigantic enduring hit. And I've spent uh, the last couple of days reading Grace Slick's memoir, which was a very entertaining read. And she made an interesting point about the lyrics of this song, which is that they flipped the script. Most of the time in love songs around then, people were singing about the love they receive. But this song describes giving love as the thing that will improve your life. I mean, those those opening lines are wild. When the truth is found to be lies and all the joy within you dies. That is really freaking bleak. <laughs> but the solution to the problem is to love somebody. And that is not bad advice. Yeah, that's they're talking about actual love. And I never that's a really good point because I would say nine times out of 10 in rock music, love means something else about what you want to do. And this Uh is actual love. So that that's uh, refreshing. Yeah, I did. And I didn't. It's a fairly subtle point that they're making. And I didn't pick up on it. I think it's the only thing about the song that could be considered subtle. (laughs) (laughs) And to John's point earlier about this not being a really well sequenced album, we've talked a lot of times on this podcast about what makes a good track to this might be the worst track too I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it's a great it's a great song, but like yes. a track two, like you you, you don't want to have the the flamethrower lead single, right? Like be in that slot. Yeah, like, you you, you want to have something that's more uh, I don't know, like helps as a framing device for the album, and maybe tuck this later. Like, I always feel like this mm-hmm. would work better as a side closer or something. Yeah, it might because this this sounds. Nothing like the rest of the album. Right. And so track two is almost, you know, I'm just going to say it is the worst spot this song could (laughs) occupy. (laughs) It's such a good song. I'm not knocking the song. It's a huge knock on the sequencing choices of this album. Yeah. It just doesn't work. And there'll be more. In this order. Yeah. The sequencing will come back, you know, with a couple songs in a row that are just, they're a little too much like each other. I agree. John, what do you think about Somebody to Love? I mean, this song is a flamethrower. <laughs> I yeah. mean, like, I'd love to be, you know, the person who's hip and contrary enough to say like, well, this isn't actually that good for reasons. Come on. Like, <laughs> and the thing is, like, I feel like, you know, there absolutely could be a version of this song with just this basic melody and just that chorus, leaving everything else as a, as a blank canvas. Like, you could make this into a less uh, impressive song. But one because of the of the of the bleakness and the subtlety of the lyrics like that's going to go a long way uh towards elevating but also this is a song that just gets by just on the intensity of the performances from everybody yeah they're they're so all in on this song in every possible way like it's impossible for it to fail mm-hmm. and it, there's just so much commitment to it from top to bottom yeah this this is an unimpeachable great song as far as I'm concerned. And you know, one of the 
one of the wildest things about Jefferson Airplane is that Grace Slick became a musician more or less on a whim. Mm. She had no vocal training whatsoever, very little musical training at all. And she and her husband at the time, uh, just they went out to see the early ver- the early uh, lineup of Jefferson Airplane one night and realized, hang on, these people are making more money in one evening than we make all week. <laughs> and it looks like a lot of fun. We should try that. And she turned out to be one of the most iconic rock and roll voices in American history. Wow. That I didn't know. All right. We have found somebody to love and you know who it is? It's our best friend. (laughs) Our listeners. Are you Jefferson Airplane didn't just have singers who happened to sound nice singing with each other. Uh, Instead, like many of the best bands of the 60s, they had a distinct harmony sound. Plenty of songs have vocal blends that sound nice, but not all of them stand out as unique. And you also wouldn't confuse, say, the Beach Boys harmonies for the Birds or the Birds for the Beatles. Same goes for Marty Ballin, Grace Slick, and Paul Kantner in the Airplane. They didn't just harmonize, they worked out a sound that was simultaneously earthy and a little spacey and always lovely. That harmony sound is showcased on My Best Friend, uh, which was written by Skip Spence, the band's original drummer who went on to found Moby Grape. His song isn't brilliant, but it is plenty pretty, and it's a showcase for some of the better harmonies you'll hear on a 1960s record. Grace Slick and we're just going to keep coming back to this. She shines here. Uh, She keeps herself low key, harmonizing exquisitely with Balin and showing once again that her voice can twinkle as effectively as it can burn. This isn't revolution, but it's also not sap. It's beauty. So when I hear this song at the beginning, um, my inclination is to roll my eyes a little bit. Hmm. (laughs) And initially I was like, uh, all right, it, it is 1967, fine. But actually, as as the song keeps going, uh, it sucks me in almost against my will. And part of that is, um, you know, as the verses move along and the uh, the meter just starts to get shaken up, like it 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 starts to get a little irregular until almost it almost starts to feel random. Like it's it started off with a uh, with, with a kind of square train of thought, and then it just kind of derailed a little bit. And I, I think that's kind of a nice effect. This might have made the better track, too. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have. Just something to like ease back on the intensity from the opener a little bit. Um, 
again, these are all hypotheticals, but like, as long as we're thinking about the exercise, like I feel like if you switch those two, like the flow of the album would improve a little bit. So yeah, mm-hmm. in balance, I don't think it's a bad song. I almost, I almost feel like if the Moody Blues had done like something similar to this, I'd probably talk myself into liking it even more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as it's, it's fine. It's it's not one of my favorites on the album, but it's okay. Yeah, this is total hippy dippy flower power nonsense, <laughs> and I kind of love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's sweet and adorable and sincere. I like the shift in intensity that John mentioned on the line. You'll be in love with me. I mean, that part is serious business. And in general, songs like this are not anything that's going to change the world, even though I think they sincerely thought it would at the time. But it's it's very pretty and it's just goofy enough and I'll take it. I like that. And the next song is called Today. Ballin actually wrote the song today thinking he would give it to Tony Bennett, but he ended up keeping it for his own band, which serves Tony Bennett right. And don't ask why. I've got my reasons. Today flirts with the kind of happy, flappy 60s balladry that Ballin was often drawn towards. I wish it was a little faster and had more energy. A song that's too slow, it threatens to derail your interest or at least my interest in the entire album. And today flirts with that, but thankfully it doesn't get there uh, because it also has so much going for it. Balan's vocal is part sappy, but also part unsettling. It's a drippy love letter made out of letters that he ripped from a magazine and haphazardly pasted together. The band plays up that atmosphere. They play pretty, but also eerie. The song's ringing, repeating guitar riff is played by Jerry Garcia, who I think our own Phil Maddox would really love if he wasn't such a snob about stoner jam bands. (laughs) And on the last verse, when Slick joins Ballin, their vocal blend is absolutely magical. On an album where Grace Slick explodes off the vinyl on the band's only two top 10 hits, she's paradoxically also the album's secret weapon. Barely calling any attention to herself, she subtly sneaks in and out of songs and consistently makes good moments great. You know, I find this song fascinating because on one side, I feel like it it's almost wanting to be, at least as, as Ben said, almost trying to be a sappy ballad. But especially because of that guitar line, it, it ends up giving this it this kind of slow burn, quiet intensity that, you know, just 
completely changes the feel of it. It becomes dark and mysterious, a little foreboding. And, you know, I don't think this is the type of song that uh, will necessarily immediately jump out at a new listener. I, I mean, I know it really didn't for me, but it's a really, really solid, quiet grower. Mm-hmm. Because it just it's simmering that the way that it sits and simmers there, it, it just kind of draws you in over time, and you know at this point I you know, I'd probably rate this in the album's top three. Wow, which wow. I would not have said initially. <laughs> like before, I would have said okay, you know whatever. It's 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 a quiet hippy dippy song with with a little bit of darkness, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's really got its charms and. I like it quite a bit at this point. Yeah, I do too. And I was so proud of myself when I was prepping for this because one of my first reactions when I heard this was, this sounds like the Grateful Dead. And then I found out it's Jerry Garcia on the guitar and I was just delighted. Uh, (laughs) I really, I really, really enjoy the atmosphere here. There's barely anything to the song, but what it does have is really good. Like primarily that guitar line, which is what finally got my attention because I didn't like the first few couple times through the album, I didn't really pay any attention to this, but that, that guitar phrase is so persistent that eventually it works its way into your consciousness sort of against your will. And then it also has, you know, those distant, very, very echoey drums. And I feel like the tambourine is deployed really, really well. Mm -hmm. And plus those vocal harmonies that Ben mentioned, um, a song this slow and minimalist is kind of risky, but the melody and the harmonies are so interesting, plus all the other little arrangement details. It ends up being pretty great. I, I wouldn't rate it quite as highly as John does, but I like it a lot. I feel like the Garcia guitar for me, like by itself, buys it like three or four slots in my rankings. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. The guy was good. It's a really, really good guitar and there's almost nothing to it, but it's so good. And we're all going to be just as enthusiastic about track five coming back to me. Okay. <laughs> the summer had inhaled and held its breath too long. The winter looked the same as if it never had gone. And through an open window where no curtain hung. I saw you. I saw you coming back to me. I am not much for slow songs. And while that is partially my attention span for sure, which is just nothing these days, uh, that is not the entire explanation. By slow songs, I don't necessarily mean ballads uh, because I love ballads. I'm not saying that, say, If I Fell is a lesser song than A Hard Day's Night, or that Ruby Tuesday is a lesser song than Let's Spend the Night Together. Those songs are slow, but they're not slow, slow. Yeah. So maybe it's it's glacial songs that I don't like. The pace alone can make them dull, but more than anything, I always get the sense that there's no there there. That the artist is making up the song as they go along and trying to disguise it by going really, really slowly and, and hoping that the the sheer feel, man, will make it sound like it's a real song. 
And usually it doesn't work for me. That's not to say that I don't like this song coming back to me. It's fine, but it does have that soporific pace going against it. I can't shake the suspicion that Marty Ballin did not have a hook in mind or even much of a melody that he thought that the simple act of hitting record and picking up his guitar and singing would mean that a song would just magically show up. Fortunately, he's a talent and his winging it results in a creepy and meditative few minutes of music. It's got feel and it's got atmosphere. I'm just not sure I'd call it a song. See, here's my question. How is this over five minutes long? (laughs) Wow. If it were, say, a minute, I would probably like it fine. But at this length, it is just way too much of almost nothing. And we mentioned before, this is the the big sequencing black hole that we alluded to earlier. Putting these two songs back to back was a huge mistake. And I think that is partly because this is early enough in rock and roll that I think the concept of an album, as we think of it now, was still fairly new. And sequencing just wasn't something that people were always putting a whole lot of thought into necessarily. You know, you needed an album to sell your singles and you'd put some other songs on there, you know, to pad out the singles. And this is this album is not that. But when they were assembling it, I wonder if the people responsible just still kind of had that mindset. And it. Oh, it makes this song suffer. And it wasn't that good to begin with, but coming where it does, doesn't do it any favors. Yeah, I'm trying not to hold the sequencing too much against it (laughs) for the reasons that you said, but it's sometimes making it really hard. Yeah. (laughs) Because you want to know what else is a problem. What? This is the side one closer. Mm. Yup. That is absolute sequencing malpractice. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody ought to be sued. (laughs) Here's the thing, like, I feel like you could have this song be as slow and dreary as it is and work if it's three minutes. You can have five minutes or you can have this pace. You cannot have both. Yeah. Again, like any given one minute part of it seems fine enough. And so, like, I don't. I don't actually hate it. Like I, I think that like there's there's enough like individual moments in here that I said okay, well that you know I, I can kind of lose myself in like any again in any given short stretch of it, but as a whole, man, it just annihilates the flow of this album. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that like part of why like when I would listen to this from time to time over the years and go. Okay, overall is fine. I'm not going to think about this again. Looking back, I think this track was a major part of why. That's that makes very sense. good points. All I really like that idea that that it, sequencing just wasn't on anybody's mind back then. Yeah, the track two was just a thing that came between track one and track three, and that's all it was. Yeah. It occurs to me now that the the black hole metaphor I made before is accurate because this does sort of overshadow everything else. It's like it's the black hole of dullness that the very interesting parts of the rest of the album have a hard time pulling back out of. So 
what if instead of a song that lasts five minutes and feels like it lasts 15 minutes, how about a song that lasts 10 seconds? Ooh, that sounds perfect. How far can we go in that time? of this song, which I forgot to say, is three-fifths of a mile in 10 seconds. A-plus title, no notes. <laughs> ben, take it away. <laughs> this is more of that grimy rock and roll that I love. It's Marty Ballin's song, though I would bet that Yorma supplied that scuzzy guitar riff that underpins the whole thing. And he definitely plays the hot guitar solos midway through the track and at the end. It's got a fantastic on-the-edge lead vocal from Marty, and I respect anyone who just can't get into his voice, but I actually think Marty Ballin is one of the unheralded great soul singers of the 1960s, and if you listen to, to his voice that way, it just always works for me. And Grace's vocal is just underneath his here, and so it makes the whole thing even stronger. For most of the song, Marty captures the anger of the counterculture, with lyrics like, do away with people wasting my precious time, do away with people laughing at my hair, take me to a circus tent where I can easily pay my rent and all the other freaks will share my cares. That is some peak adolescent alienation right there. He also hilariously lapses into complaining about the high price of cigarettes and how the price can make a grown man holler. Because people laughing at his hair is one thing, but have you seen prices these days? <laughs> Marty may have lost the entire Woodstock generation with that one last verse, but I definitely feel a kinship with him there. He can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same expensive right. <laughs> cigarettes as me. I don't know. I've always just been good at noticing when things cost too much. It's a psychic intuition that's always come easily to me. Call it a gift. <laughs> As for that great title that, that Amanda positively reviewed, three-fifths of a mile in 10 seconds, apparently it doesn't mean anything. Marty just liked the numbers and the way they work together. But that's cool. You could do that in the late 60s. I like that it kind of sounds like a play on the, the zero to 60 in however many, whatever amount of time. Yeah, we can get three-fifths yeah. of a mile <laughs> in 10 <laughs> seconds. I, I like that. Jefferson Airplane were just the right amount of silly a lot of the time. And this is where, this is a great side opener. It's like you, you take a little nap during coming back to me at the end of side one, and then you flip the record over and suddenly it's a party. 
And it's a fun party, you know? They got some energy back. I don't have a whole lot to actually say about this one. I like it a lot. It's a great showcase for the vocal harmonies they'd worked out, and it's just, it's smoking hot. But this actually, as much as I like it, it's not my favorite style of surrealistic pillow song. I've got some more on that on a later track. But John, what do you think of this one? Yeah, for a band that had no idea to sequence, they accidentally stumbled onto the perfect track <laughs> yeah. the spot because you had anything with any less energy than this like the album just going to collapse true at this point like it has to be this burst at the start of side two you know i i don't really have have too much to add beyond what was said already um i again i really really like the guitar again like i i, I still don't love marty ballon but i i do think that you know i i think he sounds better here mm-hmm. Uh, than on the on the album opener, even if I can't necessarily defend exactly why. Um, you know, again, like there's just kind of a I don't know an, an extra level of latent rage, an angst uh, that mm-hmm. that kind of works for the song, but also not like completely self serious. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun and and a lot of energy. So it it really works for me. Keeps John on podcast forever. Exactly. <laughs> And the next track, how do you even say this? DCBA hyphen 25 minus 25? Is this a math problem? I don't know. Here's the song. DCBA minus 25, I like that, uh, is a vocal showcase for Paul Kantner, the band's rhythm guitarist. Paul's singing is pleasant but indistinct. As a lead singer, he is a valuable backing vocalist. Just like as a writer of pop songs, he's a compelling rhythm guitarist. But that's okay. Not everyone can be everything. For instance, I'm not a great lead singer or writer of pop songs, but I'm... (laughs) I gotta be something. You're a great Um, podcaster about pop songs. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. The silver lining here is that an uninteresting front man can allow other band members to shine. Grace Slick, we keep coming back to her. She adds so much to the song by doubling her bandmates' vocal lines, again proving that the somebody-to-love shouter is a truly sensitive singer and supportive bandmate. Bassist Jack Cassidy is surprisingly well-recorded here, and he shows off his chops and gives the song its rhythmic structure. And the ultimate supporting player, Jorma Kalkonen, plays a smart guitar solo and provides ringing lead lines throughout the song. He accentuates the music that his bandmates are making and never tries to distract from them. This is the song closest to the sound of the band's debut album, Jefferson Airplane Takes Off. It's tight, earnest and well-harmonized, but more happy and hopeful than a lot of the songs on Surrealistic Pillow, less doom-laden, 
And there's room for that, but I do like the doomier parts of this album. And by their second album, the Jefferson Airplane songwriting had moved into a sharper, hookier place than this song would let on. And this one feels a little bit like a, a very pleasant leftover. Do we have any idea whatsoever what DCBA stands for? I couldn't find out, but I also didn't look very hard. Same. We will just have to make something <laughs> up and figure out how to fit the 25 in. Anyhow, despite that unnecessarily complicated title, I think this is my favorite song on the album. Ooh, good for you. A lot of it has to do with the vocals. The vocal harmonies are so weird and so pretty. I especially love the parts where Grace takes over and pulls the melody up higher. She sounds so beautiful there and not quite like any other singer I can think of offhand. And honestly, I don't know why more bands didn't think to use a blend of male and female voices like this. It makes for a gorgeously varied sound. A lot of times can be the element that takes a song from good to amazing. And plus the the bass, like Ben mentioned, it's unusually big here. And it sounds about as great as it possibly could on an album that has overall really rickety production. And as good as a lot of these songs are, the album sounds very dusty and dirty and muddy. And mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of the production, but that's also not unusual for albums from this time and place. They all kind of sound like this. And here's the part where everybody gets to laugh at me because the elements I really like about this song, the, the interesting melody, the vocal harmonies, the fabulous bass line, the psychedelic sound are also elements I like about early Moody Blues songs. Uh. Like, John, I'm thinking post-Denny Lane, pre-Days of Future Past. Yes. Which is yes. like eight songs. <laughs> hmm. But yes. I don't think there could have been much actual influence happening between the two bands. It's more that they were just on parallel tracks. They're drawing from similar influences. Right. They're coming from a more bluesy background and moving in a more psychedelic direction, and they hit some similar landmarks along the way. But something like this, it, the reasons I like DCBA 25 so much are a lot of the same reasons I like Fly Me High so much. So if the internet is to be believed, and we know that it always is, <laughs> uh, nice. the title is of DCBA is apparently the chords of the song. Uh, oh. In order, and twenty-five refers to LSD twenty-five, which is, I suppose, their preferred variety. Interesting. I take back everything I said. I love that title now. <laughs> My favorite part of this song. Um, I'm a little surprised you guys didn't highlight it. I love the way that um, Grace sings that ascending. We come and go as we please. Echo mm -hmm. and the similar thing in, in in the other verses. It's just heavenly to me. It's it's like this uh, this mystical smoke kind of arising. Yeah. Uh, from it. it, it could it could stay on a loop in my head. I'd be I'd be totally happy with that. It has been on a loop in my head for like a week. That's <laughs> yeah. been okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what this song like I'm honestly just kind of reminds me of mostly is it's like oh this is exactly what I think the Jefferson Airplane would sound like if they were trying to do a bird's imitation. Mm. And I mean that as a compliment. Like yeah. it, it you know it sounds like a mix of I don't know bells of Rimney uh, then filtered through uh, their their fifth dimension sound then filtered through uh, the Jefferson Airplane ethos. Like I 
But again, like there's no ripoff or anything, but they're drawing from the similar um, influences around them for just because like, you know, they're, they're going to be aware of, of what other bands are doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this isn't, you know, my, my very favorite song on the album, um, but, you know, it, it's definitely top third-ish for me. And it's, it's one that has definitely jumped out for me more uh, with uh, consistent listens uh, than necessarily it did before. So I'm glad for that. I like all Yay. that. Um, it, it's a lovely song for sure. I just, I wish it had a sharper hook. But it sounds beautiful when you're listening to it. And for me, I think I, I take your point. But for me, that part where Grace Slick takes over the melody and takes it up higher is all the hook I need. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's great. All right. Now we're going to find out how everybody feels about how do you feel. How Do You Feel was written by one Tom Mastin. It's hard to find information about Mastin. He seems to have been a friend of the Jefferson Airplane. He was also in a duo called Mastin and Brewer with uh, a musician named Michael Brewer, who later teamed up with Tom Shipley to form Brewer and Shipley, who in 1970 had the big hit One Toke Over the Line, which Amanda loves. It's my favorite song. (laughs) I like it fine. Mastin also co-wrote the song Bound to Fall on Stephen Stills' excellent album Manassas. Beyond that, not much is known about Mastin, including when and even whether he was born, whether he had parents, (laughs) and whether he has either died or will die someday. Because if it's not on Wikipedia, you can never truly say for sure. It's true. Mastin's song is quite nice, even if on this album it covers ground already covered by the song My Best Friend from earlier. Uh, It's another slight but very pretty acoustic number. Grace Slick plays a beautiful line on what is either a recorder or a flute. We're not absolutely sure, but it just comes out lovely uh, either way. And maybe even more importantly, how do you feel as a showcase for the next level harmonies between Ballin, Slick, and Kantner? However you feel about the airplane's politics or their eerie scraggle rock, both of which uh, I love, you can't hear these harmonies and deny that they were trying to create something lasting. Spoiler alert, they succeeded. John, what do you think of this? I don't dislike it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that a a disproportionate amount of my eh towards the song is if you're going to end a phrase and really, really hold out an E sound on a note, you're, you're taking a risk of it, at least for me, like it being kind of piercing and obnoxious. You, you can make that sound like uh, really, really um, emotional and powerful. Like the, the example that's coming to me actually is from um, the Pink Floyd song, Summer 68. Yes. When Rick Wright sings, how do you feel? How do you feel? Like that's just an incredibly uh, 
emotional and cathartic uh, way to seeing those same words. Yeah, I had exactly the same thought. Hear that? How, how do you feel? Ugh, I don't know. And yeah, the 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 vibe of the song, you know, there there is a, a bit of me feeling like oh, before I can say anything else, I gotta I gotta clear my hookah out of the way going on here. <laughs> and at the same time, I just can't quite bring myself to hate it. Like it's it's so charming and innocent and and pot filled. <laughs> that's it's fine. It, again, it's it. I again, I think it's another one of those tracks that again like contributed to you know when i would listen to this and i'd be like yeah when i'm done even though i would simultaneously like the album i think that this was one of the tracks that uh gave me that conflicted feel so it's okay but um definitely not one of my favorites on the album yeah i made that same i drew that same mental line between this and summer 68 and and i thought you know summer 68 is somebody who really wants to know how you feel yeah but then I kind of thought, but they're doing completely different. They're coming from different places. Like Rick Wright, he was he was he was having a little emotional moment there in that song. And Marty Ballin here has just got hearts in his eyes. <laughs> you know, talking about how this very relatable feeling of getting flustered and not knowing what to say when you meet a pretty girl. And I think this is just as charming as it can be. <laughs> I think it's sweet. It's a little funny. And it is incredibly dated. Honestly, what it reminds me of is like those of us who were young school children in the early to mid 80s, we watched a lot of film strips that had been produced in the 70s. And they all had music that sounded like this. <laughs> yes. Like I'm seeing like pictures of flowers and a very boring narrator telling us about, you know, botany. So, you know, the song itself isn't really anything world changing, like I've said before about these songs. But I, I feel like the vocal harmonies put it well over the top. So it ends up still being very memorable. It's really sweet. And I love how it ends. It's, it's a great choice to wind it up with just the voices. Tell me how do you feel? She is coming away. Tell me how do you and overall, um, again, with the weird sequencing, this is, is somewhat unusual album along those lines and that I think overall side two is better than side one. Yes. And a lot of that is because side one has coming back to me on it and there's, but there's <laughs> nothing on side two that I don't like. This is just a really, really great album side top to bottom. And the next song, uh, another great title. This is Embryonic Journey.
what does one say about embryonic journey it's one guy playing acoustic guitar and it is a talented guy Jorma Kalkinen, and he plays lovely acoustic guitar he plays sharp notes and crisp chords and still somehow paints a dreamy feel across the track he's a damn wizard here I'm sure a scholar of New Age acoustic guitar instrumentals could comment on whether this is in the upper rank of those things. Is there anyone here who is such a scholar? Enthusiastic amateur, let's say. (laughs) So Embryonic Journey, it's an illustration of the band's breadth for sure. Uh, But to me, it's also still just a guy playing acoustic guitar. And so it's almost like the album falls off a cliff and we get to wait two minutes while it climbs back up and resumes. Where did it go during those two minutes? I never quite remember. John, what do you think? Do you remember where it goes? I think it, it goes into a really good place. Like the, the, the actual quality of the track as an entity unto itself almost doesn't matter to me. Like again, for all of the the bad sequencing on this this album, I actually feel like this is in a great spot. It especially after what just came before, it's like a, a chance for the smoke to clear and kind of just get yeah. a, a sonic reset. Mm-hmm. And then also just just generally, I I like it uh, when when bands will just throw in random acoustic instrumentals uh, just as a as a way to. Uh, to, to take a quick break um, you know examples I could think of of where this works you know yes did it a couple times mm-hmm. with uh, clap and mood for a day Black Sabbath has a couple of these uh, with Laguna Sunrise and fluff um, Led Zeppelin has a really great one of these with Bronyer R to do this too and like it, it can really be a nice little bridge and palate cleanser again not not necessarily as a, a great upper elite track on its own you could even if you want just like put it off to the side if you feel compelled to like do um you know rankings of where do all the tracks stand uh against each other but i i think that embryonic journey in the context of this album and this side works really really effectively because i if nothing else, I have no idea what else you would stick here from the available tracks uh, to, to to be an effective uh, setup for what's about to come next. So, yeah, I'm I'm quite OK with it. I love Embryonic Journey. I'm glad this is actually the third song in the album that I already knew well, because uh, it tends to pop up in various unexpected pop culture places. In fact, the first place I ever heard it was in the Friends series finale. Oh, and I, you know, I liked the song. I eventually found out what it was and I acquired it in a way that I'm sure was perfectly legal. That's the only way I ever do that. <laughs> and I've been listening to it ever since. I think it's gorgeous. It's very, very well performed. And somehow the production sounds clearer than on most of the rest of the album. And I just tend to really love a solo acoustic guitar moment in general. You know, like John was saying, and then especially that part, it's about the middle third of the song when the chord gets super weird for a little bit and then it settles back down again after a while. And it's there's just exactly the right amount of it 
but I love it so much that I frequently listen to this two or three times in a row. That is great. You know what other song I love that sounds quite a lot like this is Little Martha by the Allman Brothers Band from 1972. when I first saw the Friends finale, I thought I was hearing Little Martha. It wasn't until later that I found out it was a Jefferson Airplane song. And the Allman Brothers were very influenced by the California psychedelic scene. And I would be shocked if Dwayne Allman didn't have embryonic journey in mind when he wrote Little Martha. I love that you guys like this and love it more than I do. And I really like what you have to say about it. I mean, just just a couple thoughts. Um, I'm a huge fan of Little Martha, and I had not thought of that that connection. So that was really good. But I also think that Little Martha, I mean, that's a pop song. That That is like a hit mm-hmm. song, except they played it on acoustic guitar instead of fleshing it out with with lyrics and a band arrangement. Whereas I think as as lovely as, as Yorma's playing is here, it it doesn't have that structure and, and those hooks yeah. the way that, that uh, Little Martha has. And I also, I I think about, I think John's concept of the grout track that he talked about on the White Album. I mean, this is a great grout track. You know, it's kind of like in between two other songs, but as much as I love this album, I don't know whether it needed a grout track. You know, this is not 30 Beatles songs. This is, there's only 11 songs on here and, and, you know, one or two of them are, you know, they're just a little lightweight. So I don't know how much, if there's only 11 songs, I don't know how much one of them needed to be just one guy on an acoustic guitar for a few minutes. I don't know how much it would need to be. We would need to have a grout track of one guy on an acoustic guitar if the immediately preceding track was not How Do You Feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't think that the flow of this album works if you don't mm-hmm. have this here. And th- that's, that's what it comes out to, to me. Like maybe if, And maybe if they had changed the way that uh, the tracks had been ordered in other spots of the album, maybe you, you stumble onto a sequence where you can then drop this out. But as is, I kind of feel like it has to be there. But again, this also may be because of my personal ambivalence mm-hmm. towards how do you feel? Yeah, I think this is this is the one stretch on the album. These three songs or four songs, if we go back to DCBA 25, where the sequencing is actually perfect. Yeah. And the next song... This is the other monster track on the album. You've probably heard it before. This is called White Rabbit. White Rabbit was written by Grace Slick. It's one of the two songs she brought to the band from her time in her original band, The Great Society. She draws the song's striking imagery from Alice in Wonderland. And not to criticize, but isn't it a little embarrassing that her big cultural reference is a Disney kids movie from 1951? Her colleagues, they must have heard this and concluded that she was a little bit, I don't know, ignorant and uncultured. Don't you think, guys? 
Ben, you ignorant slut. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. White Rabbit is actually Grace's fractured adaptation of Lewis Carroll's 1865 novel, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and his follow-up novel, Through the Looking Glass. It turns out that the Disney movie was actually based on, well, it's going to take me some time to process this one. Uh, Grace uses the characters and themes of the beloved novel, which were already fanciful and distorted and creepy in their original form, as elements in her description of an intense acid trip. There's a deadly seriousness to White Rabbit that can leave it open to accusations of of self-parody. I mean, there is nothing subtle about this song. She might as well be screaming, it's the late 60s, man. (laughs) It's almost like if, if Bob Dylan had sung, there's something happening and you don't know what it is, Okay, it's actually the flowering of a new generation that expands their minds and won't play by the old generation's rules. Do you, Mr. Jones? Mr. Jones being a metaphoric (laughs) representation of the stodgy, clueless previous generation, as well as the titular thin man. You better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone, because the times they are (laughs) a-changing. On the other hand, what White Rabbit is, it is so damn good at being that because Slick just goes all in. She sells the mood and the energy with disarming earnestness and with that huge, compelling voice that is just impossible to ignore. The band, especially Jack Cassidy on bass and Spencer Dryden on drums, they really do construct a funereal atmosphere that grabs your attention from the first rumbling of the bass guitar. Your McCalkinen's tickly guitar lines, they snake in and out of the beat. The song's structure is atypical. It's got verses and a bridge, but no chorus that I can hear. As Grace herself has pointed out, the entire song is a crescendo. Her singing builds in intensity until by the last verse, she is nearly screaming at us, though perfectly on key, to feed your head. We've waited two minutes for the hook to come, and then there it is, absolutely gigantic and unabashed in its willingness to smack the squareness out of anyone listening. White Rabbit reached number eight on the pop charts and deservedly so, because whatever it was, a little good, a little bad, it was those things in such a big and daring way. The whole band commits fully and it's stunning. My word, that woman could sing. (laughs) Yikes. What a weird, delightful, utterly unique little song, just beautifully performed by everybody involved. And what makes this just genius is that it gets out at exactly the right time. Mm -hmm. After she sings Feed Your Head, you expect the song to drop back down and do another build with a second verse, but it doesn't. And that is 
one of the smartest things any band's ever done. They do the just they make the perfect move and just stop after one giant build, and it's absolutely perfect that way. Grace Slick says that this was uh, heavily influenced by Miles Davis's sketches of Spain, which I don't know well, so I can't speak to that. But John's nodding his head, so he must <laughs> think that makes sense. And it's constructed as a bolero or like a kind of Spanish march, which is a really, really interesting and unusual sound. Um, she also says in her memoir that she feels like she missed the mark with the lyrics. And I, th- I think I agree with her in terms of what she was actually trying to do. Her goal was to point out the hypocrisy of the prior generations who admonished the young people about the dangers of marijuana and LSD while they were downing booze and pills in massive quantities <laughs> and giving their children weird ass books to read like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and then were surprised when they started taking psychedelic drugs. I don't think that point comes across at all. But it's still, when you take the song on its own terms, it's still just a wonderful little acid trip of a pop song. So I love this. Uh, it was interesting. I didn't know the uh, the sketches of Spain connection, but now that you've mentioned it, I, I totally hear it. I, the The biggest thing about it is this is a song that is written in Phrygian mode, Oh, uh, which I talked about at great length uh, in our episode 79 on uh, Bitches Brew by Miles Davis. Yeah. You should go listen to that if you hadn't. Um, and the thing about it is, like, it does. It, it's it's a scale that allows you to to have a very strong Spanish sort of exotic feel brought into the music uh, that you can't necessarily you can't really achieve in, in major or minor. This is my favorite song of the album. Like that was always going to be the case. Like even you know, again, like even uh, you know when I was ambivalent about this album. Uh, you know, I still really love the hits, and, and part of it's because I love—I've always loved uh, Grace Slick's voice, and again, I—I I now uh, love it even more than I used to. And this, I—I I know that like people want to laugh at like how earnest and how serious it's like. Oh, you're taking Alice in Wonderland and making to this 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 big pounding, almost the Imperial March or something like that. <laughs> but like, I don't mind that. I mean, anyone who knows about the the uh, the dorky earnestness of my taste that's expounded in dozens of episodes to this point will know that I was not <laughs> going to mind this sort of thing like and I like I kind of like the idea of her saying like you know at this point you know and obviously Alice in Wonderland had been around for a long time but by the time this was written the the Disney film had 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 kind of I don't want to say supplanted the book in people's consciousness but like it was the representation. Uh, you know, best known to people mm-hmm. at that point. And, you know, when you watch it, you know, the, you can watch it on the level of like, oh, this is a fun, delightful, uh, colorful romp. Or you could watch it on the level of um, this, this is colorful, but this is still terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, she gloms onto the terror that's just kind of underpinning everything. Like, I remember, um, you know, the first time I watched, uh, extended portions of Alice in Wonderland as an adult, I was like, wow, this is way darker and way more twisted that, than I remember. And I feel like she's approaching this from the angle of an adult, you know, possibly very high, <laughs> uh, watching Alice in Wonderland and picking up on all the, ah, there's some, some really, really bonker stuff happening here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I am absolutely in love, uh, 
with this song. Plus, I love song length crescendos anyway. Yeah. Like, like you know, the, the, the big thing that I couldn't get over in, in, in seeing a waveform of this is like, oh, that's also the talking drum waveform, which <laughs> I thought was very, very funny. What's that? It's a, it's a King Crimson instrumental. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, if you look at the waveform, it's basically just like just an expanding wall of sound, like exactly like White Rabbit is. Yeah, I haven't seen the Disney movie in a long time, but I read both of the books like 150 times a piece mm. when I was a kid. And they're both very, like literally nightmarish. You know, Alice jumps into a rabbit hole and then it's just it's just dream logic after that uh, in the first book. And in the second one, she steps through a mirror. It's through the looking glass and what Alice found there. That's where the Jabberwocky is. And it's it's all very scary. And she's trying to get out, but can't keeps getting pulled for she keeps getting pulled further and further in, which Grace Slick points out. Well, I don't know that this is what was intended, but. You can read both of these books as just giant drug metaphors. Hmm. And so that's what she was. She was turning that subtext into text, essentially. Um, and the the Dormouse only shows up in a couple of scenes, and he doesn't actually say feed your head at any point, but he does occasionally point out the complete absurdity of everything that's going on around. Hmm. So that, I mean, that works. She's saying feed your head, educate yourself, read read the books, you know, expand your mind with you know, literature and education and psychedelic drugs. <laughs> yeah, I have not read the books, uh, but, and, but I do remember that the movie is pretty dark. I mean, if, if I remember yeah. one of the, the playing card guards gets his head chopped off, not, I don't think it's on screen, but you know, it's going to happen. And yeah, um, well, that's it, it, the red queen's off with her head. That happens in, uh, through the looking glass, there's a croquet game that the red queen is taking very, very seriously <laughs> and people get legit executed for doing it wrong. Wow. It made me think of the excellent Disney music episode that that you guys did with Rich and how the the Great Mouse Detective also features a death that can, that can really get to yeah. a kid yep. if they're watching. And this is another example yeah. of like, wow, that, that just got real in the middle of a cartoon. And I don't know if you guys remember, there was a live action Alice in Wonderland that was on TV a lot when we were yeah. kids, the one with Carol Channing as the White Queen. And that one gave me, honest to goodness, nightmares. Wow. Because the the Jabberwocky is the monster that's chasing her the whole time. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of horror that you can find in this innocent saving children's book. (laughs) And you would think that the album would end there, but it does not. We have (sighs) another song and it is called this is a great title. Plastic Fantastic Lover. That bass. When I can hear it, it's awesome. Sounds like a rubber band. Yeah. Her neon mouth with a ring it's all smile, nothing but an electric sign. You could say she has an individual style, she's a part of a carnival time. Super see a lady chrome color clothes you wear Cause you have no other But I suppose no one knows You're my plastic fantastic lover This plastic woman will devour us all. <laughs> so 20 years before Homer Simpson, Marty Ballin also wrote a romantic ode to his TV 
because the uh, plastic fantastic lover is his TV. And the song is an extended metaphor on his relationship with his TV, how he loves it, how it abuses him. It sounds like it could be forced, except that it's so good. I mean, the the lyrics here, his lover has a a neon mouth and chrome-covered clothes and an aluminum finish, and it is plugged into him. He doesn't make his TV sexy, but he definitely makes it sexual. And that can't be an easy leap uh, because it's a TV. If that is an easy leap for you to make, good for you. Also, you're a deviant and likely dangerous, uh, but it's just not an easy leap for me to make. Yeah, we're not here to kink shame. <laughs> uh, Marty's melody here is is minimal. He spends a lot of the track almost rapping. I wouldn't call it rapping, but it's, it's in that direction. But man, his bandmates step up here. Paul Kantner strums his acoustic guitar insistently. Jack Cassidy does his rumbly thing underneath. Spencer Dryden stomps along with more heft than usual. And Yorma Kalkonen's bluesy guitar provides an ongoing commentary throughout the song. So all together, they turn a really good song into a great record. Quick question for you guys. How does this compare to David Bowie's TVC-15 in terms of anthropomorphized televisions? <laughs> well, TVC-15, I think, is a better song and a more terrifying <laughs> situation. I agree. What do you think about Plastic Fantastic Lover, John? I think it's fine. It makes no sense as an album closer. Nope. So there's the this idea that I've mentioned a handful of times on the podcast before, the idea of an album having an encore. Mm-hmm. And generally, I'm pro-encore for an album of having something that doesn't feel connected. But the thing is, to me, in order for that to work, the sequencing on the rest of the album has to be really good. Like you have to have a set of songs that feel like, oh, they go together in this perfect right way. And then you have something else. But if it's all haphazard and then you end with something that makes no sense as the closer, it just leaves me feeling all jumbled and confused and a little uncomfortable, which again, I feel bad for what this ends up making me think of the song when I listen to the album straight through. Because if I listen to the song just by itself, it's got a lot of good elements. Um, again, the, the rhythm section is a lot of fun. The the lyrics are, you know, the, the, they're goofy and they're enjoyable. But it leaves not a bad taste in my, my mouth at the end, but not a, f- a completely fulfilled one either. It leaves me feeling just a little bit puzzled. Yeah, it, the album could have ended with White Rabbit and this one could have gone in the middle. I think it would have been more effective. Yeah. Yeah. What is this song doing here? <laughs> it's a perfectly fine song, but it's in the wrong place. This White Rabbit is an album closer if I ever heard one. So like John said, I have it written down here in my notes too. This ends up kind of sounding like the encore and it's not a, as an encore, it's not a very good one. (laughs) So it just doesn't work in this spot, but it's a lot like the track two problem on this album as a song. I think it's perfectly fine. It just suffers from, you know, sequencing errors. I don't have a whole lot specific to actually say about it. I enjoy it. I think it's a fine song. Um, One thing that popped into my head is that the song it reminds me of is a simple desultory philippic or how i was robert mcnamara into (laughs) submission by simon and garfunkel yes which i think came out the prior year well i paid all the dues i want to pay 
And I learned the truth from Lenny Bruce And all of my wealth won't buy me health So I smoke a pint of tea a day this is actually why I was listening to all those Simon and Garfunkel albums last week, because that comparison popped into my head, and I thought, I better listen to that again, see if there's actually anything there. I think there might be, but the thing is, that song was Simon and Garfunkel making fun of Bob Dylan, and I think uh, a lot of what made me think of it is Marty Ballin's vocal delivery, which is also kind of, it, it sounds like he's sending up Bob Dylan a little bit, and... As you guys know, I'm in a perpetual fight with Bob Dylan and I'm okay with people making fun of him. <laughs> so, you know, that that aspect of the song works for me. I think this album would be a good deal better if it ended with just a quiet fading out folk rock. <laughs> yes. And that somewhat weirdly wraps up Surrealistic Pillow. Surreally wraps up <laughs> Surrealistic Pillow. Ooh, I'm smart. Ben, what are your final thoughts on this album? The history of the Jefferson Airplane gets fractured pretty quickly. Strap in because this will be bewildering. Will it be useful? Eh, who can even say what useful means? The classic lineup of the Jefferson Airplane made three more increasingly cracked albums in the late 1960s, after bathing at Baxter's, Crown of Creation, and Volunteers. In 1969, Yorma and Yak, sorry, Jack, formed a side project called Hot Tuna, which allowed them to indulge their love of down-home acoustic blues. Terrible band name. That's one of the worst band <laughs> names I know. It is. The albums I've heard are, are virtuosic and authentic as hell, but not especially exciting. Drummer Spencer Dryden quit in 1970. He was replaced by Joey Covington. Violinist Papa John Creech joined the band that year because why the hell not? That same year, Marty Ballin simultaneously lost interest and was also edged out of his own band by Grace Slick and Paul Kantner. And when he left, they lost a lot of their pop instincts and their tightness and their organization. There were two more albums in 1971 and 1972. After that, the Jefferson Airplane, what's a good metaphor here? They ran aground. No, that makes no damn sense. They broke down on the side of the road. There you go. From there, the band members, they made albums and performed live in all sorts of combinations, really anytime they ran out of food at the commune and there was danger that one of them might have to go out and get a job. In 1974, Kantner and Slick formed a spin-off band, Jefferson Starship. And Jefferson Starship, I don't know why, but they were way more successful than the airplane ever was 
releasing eight albums that went gold or platinum. Even Marty Ballin joined back up uh, for a couple years and supplied one of their biggest hits in 1975, the song Miracles. That's a good song. Yeah, I love that one. If only you believe like I believe, baby, like I believe, we could buy. If only you believe, if only you believe in miracles, so would I. After 10 years with Jefferson Starship, Paul Kantner strapped on his parachute and jumped out of the Starship. Sorry, I'm just not good at these metaphors. The remaining band members, including Slick as the only former member of Jefferson Airplane, became Starship, who had those two massive hit singles I talked about at the beginning of the episode. You remember the abominations, the hideous scars on the skin of rock and roll history. You know. I like them. (laughs) That's great. I'm glad. In 1989, five members of the classic Airplane lineup reunited for a one-off album called Jefferson Airplane. And that's cool. I geek out on reunion stuff like that. Unfortunately, the album works better as a nostalgic idea than as actual music. So I recommend that you read the Wikipedia entry and skip the album. In 1992, Paul Kantner formed Jefferson Starship, The Next Generation, which brought together lots and lots of old hippies, almost a job creation scheme for people who had nothing worthwhile to offer society outside of old stories about Woodstock. Among those old hippies were original Jefferson Airplane members Marty Ballin, Jack Cassidy, and Signe Anderson. In 2016, Paul Kantner died And in an odd bit of trivia, Signe Anderson died on the same day of unrelated causes in a different part of the country. Anyway, without its founder, Jefferson Starship has actually lurched on, and they're still out there sailing the high seas today. Their lineup features exactly nobody who was on the album that we're discussing right now. There's also a version of Starship still out there touring, also featuring an anonymous bunch of yahoos. Wow. The CDC has cautioned that if you attend a local county fair, you run a significant risk of hearing one of these Jefferson-related bands playing near the food tent. Proceed with caution. (laughs) Of the other members of the classic airplane lineup, Spencer Dryden died in 2005. Marty Ballin passed away in 2018. Grace Slick is 82 years old and a happily retired legend. Yorma and Yak are 82 and 78 and still playing the blues with Hot Tuna. The members of Jefferson Airplane each brought significant talent to the band, but they also did more than that. They goaded each other into making better music than they otherwise would have. Marty Ballin might have been happy singing gloppy pop songs a la Gary Puckett in the Union Gap. Uh, but he was pushed for a few years into singing exciting and soulful rock and roll. Paul Kantner might never have actually picked up his guitar and gone on stage again, but thanks to Marty's ambition, Paul lent his guitar chords to hooky rock and roll classics. Yorma Kalkinen might have played respectable blues guitar for a few dozen drunks in dank clubs each night, 
But being in the Jefferson Airplane put him on stage at Woodstock and allowed him to play world-shaking lead guitar as part of the soundtrack for an entire generation. And without Grace Slick joining the band, they all might have played it a little too safe and stayed a little too below the radar. Only Grace had the gumption to demand the world's attention. So knowingly or not, the members of Jefferson Airplane pushed each other to make something classic and lasting. John, what do you think? You know, I, I've been sitting here thinking about why exactly was it um, that, you know, as I alluded to before in the past when I would listen to this album, you know, w- would I come away with the the feeling of, yeah, I, I generally like it and also, you know, feel at the same time, you know, fairly unenthused about it. And what I think the reason for this is, is I was making the mistake of saying that because it came out in 1967 and it's generally uh, considered a classic, I have to, in my mind, almost like slot it against the other 1967 classics, the, the, the really, really big ones from that year. And, and in a way, I almost feel like that's the wrong standard for this because, again, as we've harped on among other things, you know, the sequencing for this is not good mm. as a whole. Um, again, not every act in 1967, um, you know, was aware of, oh, we have to start paying attention to this. But by 1968, for the most part, bands would. And so, like, th- there's a part of me that wants to say, like, well, okay, there, there's there's good songs or there's great songs. Uh, do I want to, you know, necessarily vault it onto the level that I've I've sometimes seen it placed? And my feeling now is, I almost feel like that's the wrong question, because ultimately, like, in, in getting to know this really, really well for this episode, what I've kind of realized is, you know, this just has a lot of good on it. Mm-hmm. I, and and some of the things that I knew were great already are even better than I remembered. Again, you know, Grace Slick, as I said, you know, went up a notch for me in listening to this. And yes, there there are there's some aspects of this that you know are are dated hippie nonsense. And there are some things where I say, you know what, you know, I I'm not necessarily sure that this is going to be my cup of tea. But there's a lot of really good material on here. There's a lot of good songwriting. There's a lot of good ideas crashing into each other. And it's all held together at a pretty high level, all things considered. And so what I would say is at this point, you know, not only do I like this, but I actually feel inspired to actually hear more of the Jefferson Airplane at this point, which I, for the most (laughs) part, did not for the last 20 years. And so Surrealistic Pillow, you're a good album. (laughs) Thanks for letting me listen to you. (laughs) Well said. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is how often I get pushed into reconsidering albums that I hadn't paid a lot of attention to for whatever reason. And in the case of this album, I think I just picked it up at the wrong time in my life. Uh, I was a cynical 90s teenager. I was not going to vibe with 60s flower flower power hippie nonsense. But... Now I'm in my 40s and I love 60s flower power hippie nonsense. <laughs> so, you know, the thing about Surrealistic Pillow is you you have to be at least a little bit okay with that. Yep. And if you are, the good news is that this is all 60s flower power nonsense executed at a really high level. These are very good songs. 
And as long as that vibe doesn't put you off, and it shouldn't because it's positive and sincere and, you know, culturally it ended up maybe being a little misguided, but whatever, just judge the songs on their own merits and they're good songs. And so I am really, really happy that I was sort of made to give Jefferson Airplane another (laughs) try because this turned out to be a super enjoyable experience. Guys, that was awesome, both of you. Now, for me and John, who likes a realistic pillow and don't really know any more Jefferson Airplane, (laughs) and all the listeners who are just like us, Ben, what should we do next? I mean, there's a lot I haven't explored, uh, but... And, and as I soliloquized a minute ago, there are a lot of directions to go in if you want more music uh, from this group of baby boomers. Uh, so any recommendation I make is not meant to be the last word on the subject. The Jefferson Airplane were a legendary live act. They played a memorable set at Woodstock. They played the infamous Altamont Festival, which went badly for them. Uh, when Marty Ballin saw a female fan being mistreated in front of the stage, He went down to help her, and he ended up being beaten, I think, into unconsciousness by the Hells Angels motorcyclists who were working as the festival's security. Yeah, they knocked him out. Yeah. Paul Kantner didn't run into the crowd like Balin did, but there's footage of him calling out the Hells Angels for what they did, which at least has to have made for a nerve-wracking walk back to their big, colorful Scooby-Doo bus after the performance. Uh, Except they were actually walking back to a helicopter, which removed them from the festival. Smart. Yeah. In 1969, the airplane released a live album called Bless Its Pointed Little Head, uh, consisting of songs they recorded at both the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West. And there are a lot of great moments on the album. My favorite is their take on the song, The Other Side of This Life by Fred Neal, who also wrote the the great song, Everybody's Talking. This track showcases all my favorite aspects of the airplane's music. Marty Ballin sings his guts out, giving a great soulful performance. And Grace Slick is right there with him, sounding lovely and keeping the excitement level high. Paul Kantner on rhythm guitar and Spencer Dryden on drums keep the band barreling along. Yorma Kalkinen shreds on guitar. And Jack Cassidy on bass is better recorded here than on any of the band's studio albums. And his punchy, lyrical playing shows off why he's regarded as one of the best bassists in rock history. It sums up what I love about this band in a very exciting six minutes. Yeah, there were a couple of versions of uh, The Other Side of This Life available. Let me know if I got the right one. Baby, 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 let's investigate the other side of life tonight. I have to imagine this is the Moody Blues. Oh, was that wrong? <laughs> Oh, you're right. Sorry. Turns out that was The Other Side of Life by the Moody Blues. Hang on a minute. I have another clip here. Let's see if it's the right one. This is our version of Rick Rolling.
John, do you have any recommendations for the nice people? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am just going to say what Ben said, because I trust him. He's reliable that way. Uh, <laughs> I will recommend reading Grace Slick's memoir. It's called Somebody to Love? Question mark. And she is an extremely entertaining person. And that was an extremely entertaining read. That's awesome. Well, that does it for Jefferson Airplane. So next up, uh, Rich is going to be back. He's going to talk about Mad Villainy by Mad Villain, an album I think I had heard of before (laughs) and I am looking forward to learning about. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Surrealistic Pillow and other albums by Jefferson Airplane slash Jefferson Starship slash Starship at your local record store or directly from jeffersonairplane.com if all you're looking for is a vinyl reissue of the worst of Jefferson Airplane, which is all they have in stock right now. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every other song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at DiscordPod on Twitter for news and updates. Visit John's Music Review Archive at johnmcferrinmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, as always, he rates albums in hexadecimal, which is quite surreal of him. (laughs) <laughs> Editing is by Rich Bennell, and special thanks as always to Mike DeFabio for production, our theme song, and other original music. We'll see you next album, and keep as cool as you can. Grace Schlick. Marty Balin, Paul Kentner, Jorma, something. These are the members of the airplane. <laughs> <laughs>